I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor and for riches. But on my corns too long you've tread, you fine-haired sons of bitches. These are the words of Black Bart, the gentleman bandit who preferred to leave poems at the scene of the crime rather than dead bodies. Black Bart wasn't a killer, and he never really hurt anybody, except maybe for Wells Fargo, whose stagecoaches he robbed at least 28 times over the course of his career, taking thousands of dollars in the process. Black Bart would pay for his crimes by doing a stretch in California's notorious San Quentin prison. And upon his release, he disappeared. Or did he? Who was the mysterious Black Bart? Where'd he come from? Where'd he disappear to? Why did he hate Wells Fargo so much? Find out all this and more in this newest Dead Poet Society episode of Bloody Beaver Podcast. Believe it or not, Black Bart wasn't the man's real name. He was born Charles Earl Bowles, B-O-L-E-S, in Norfolk, England, sometime around 1829. His family immigrated to the United States when Charles was still a baby, and his dad farmed 100 acres near Plysis Village on the Alexandra Bay in New York State. Charles, or Charlie as he was sometimes called, had a pretty normal childhood. Basic education, nothing fancy, but he did learn how to read and cipher. He was an athletic kid and, according to some, the best collar and elbow wrestler for his weight class in the entire county. But Charles wasn't content to just stay at home and work the family farm. Like many young men, both before him and after, Charles sought adventure and riches. And we're better to find both in the California Gold Rush. I've talked about the California Gold Rush of 1849 briefly on this podcast before, but for you new listeners or people like me with a horrible memory, gold was discovered in Coloma, California, some 30-odd miles north of Sacramento in early 1848. Over the course of the next few years, hundreds of thousands of hopefuls, known as the 49ers, flooded the area looking to strike it rich. And not just Americans, by the way. Thousands of miners came from Mexico, England, Germany, Italy, France. You had Australians, Turks, Bosques, even Africans came in search of gold. And among this melting pot of treasure hunters was Charles Bowles and his cousin David. But first, they had to somehow get all the way from upstate New York to the West Coast. I did a quick search on Travelocity and I found a one-way flight that'll take you out of Watertown, New York, not far from where Charles Bowles grew up, at 8 a.m. and put you in Sacramento, California that afternoon at 3.26 p.m. for just under 200 bucks. In the late 1840s, it wouldn't have been quite so easy. Charlie and his cousin likely traveled by train or boat from New York to Missouri, where according to one source I read, they endured a rough winter. Then they would have headed west in a wagon train out of Independence, followed the Oregon Trail across the Great Plains through present-day Kansas, Nebraska, and Wyoming, a land that in 1849 was still teeming with great herds of buffalo, a land still very much ruled by nomadic warrior nations like the Lakota, the Pawnee, the Arapaho, and the Cheyenne. They probably made their way to Fort Hall in present-day Idaho, where they'd break off and head southwest through the arid Great Basin region, passing through present-day Nevada before finally finding themselves in California's Sierra Nevada mountains. Just from the pushing off point of Missouri, this trip could take up to six months, not to mention however long it could have taken Bowles and his cousin to reach Missouri from New York. And it was a dangerous journey. Many an unmarked grave littered the Oregon-California Trail. Now, I found it interesting that they chose this route. I would have assumed it would have been a lot more logical to go by sea, which a lot of people did. It was a lot quicker, only took about a third of the time as crossing my wagon. But even still, this was before the Panama Canal. So if you went that route, you actually had to cross the Isthmus of Panama canoeing up rivers and riding mules through the jungle till you finally hit Panama City on the Pacific coast. And then you board another ship bound for San Francisco. Many travelers perished due to malaria or the yellow fever taking this route. But like I said, it was a hell of a lot quicker than going overland. Probably a lot more expensive, but faster. And faster than the third option, the Cape Horn route, which took you all the way down past the southern tip of South America. 
And then, of course, by the time you get to California, you get yourself outfitted, buy some pickaxes, some shovels, some pans, plus all the basic gear you need to live, a tarp or a tent, a bedroll, some cooking utensils, maybe some tobacco and whiskey to smooth out some of life's rough edges. Before you know it, you're in business, hoping to, as 50 Cent once said, get rich or die trying. Neither of which happened for Charles or David. They ended up heading back home to New York in 1852. Not for long, though. Charlie made another trip out west with cousin David, and this time his older brother Robert came along. Charles Bowles had six brothers altogether, by the way, and three sisters. Not a whole lot to do in the early 19th century once the sun went down, but to make babies. The second trip to the gold fields proved to be disastrous. Both David and Robert quickly fell ill and died. Charles stuck around for two more years, never struck it rich, and returned home once again. Ended up getting married in 1854 to a Mrs. Mary Elizabeth Johnson. And by 1860, the couple were living in Decatur, Illinois, with their four children. And then the Civil War broke out. In 1862, Charles would have been around 32, 33 years old. An old man in today's military, but that didn't stop him from enlisting with Company B of the 116th Illinois Infantry. Now, Bowles must have been pretty good at soldiering, because within just a year, he attained the rank of first sergeant. He was seriously wounded in the Battle of Vicksburg, took part in Sherman's March to the Sea, and was finally discharged at the war's end in 1865, but not before receiving his commission as an officer, a first lieutenant. You know, it's interesting to think about. I'm a direct descendant of someone who, just like Bowles, fought at the Battle of Vicksburg, only on the other side. How crazy would it be if it were one of my great-great-great-granddaddies that wounded the famous Black Bart? By the way, eight soldiers from the 116th, Charlie's outfit, received our nation's highest award for valor, the Medal of Honor, during the Battle of Vicksburg. These men volunteered for what was called a forlorn hope, a nice way of saying a suicide mission. They stormed the rebel defenses with planks and ladders, making sort of a bridge over the Confederate entrenchments, sacrificing their lives so their fellow soldiers could accomplish the mission. After the war, Charles returned home to his family in Illinois, but he didn't stay long. There was a new gold rush, this one taking place in Montana, and with it, a new chance to strike it rich. It actually looks like Bowles did have some luck while in Montana. In 1869, he wrote his wife Mary saying that he had purchased a mine for $260 in gold dust. $260 in 1869 is equivalent to about $5,000 in today's money. So if he had already been able to dig five large out of the ground, that's not too bad. That's just enough to keep a man motivated. Montana's also where Charlie's deep-seated hatred of Wells Fargo began. His little gold mine used what was called long toms. Basically troughs about 12 inches long, 8 to 10 inches deep. You'd cover one end of the trough with a metal sheet with holes in it to let grains of sand and gold pass through. In order for this to work, you had to have a steady stream of water. One day, some men approached Bowles and offered to buy him out. He turned him down, though, thinking he'd make more money off his mine in the long run. Well, these guys that approached him worked for Wells Fargo, and they wanted the land that his mine was located on. Since he refused to sell, they cut off his water supply, forcing him to eventually abandon the claim. I've heard of this happening before to small-time ranchers. You know, they don't want to sell out to the big outfits, so the big outfits would dam up a river, diverting it so the small outfit no longer had a water source flowing through the property for their livestock. It's a dick move for sure, and Charlie Bowles didn't find it very amusing. Matter of fact, in one of the letters he wrote back home, he stated that he was, quote, going to take steps. No word on what steps he planned to take, but what he did do was write one last letter home to his wife from Silverbow, Montana, dated August 25th, 1871. In the letter, he said he finally struck gold and could take care of his family and he'd be returning home soon. This was the last time his wife would hear from him for over 10 years. I should point out here that in Charlie's early days in Montana, he wrote his wife often, sometimes up to four letters a week, letters that mostly contained sentiments of love and affection that he felt towards his bride. You can only imagine how she felt when the letters suddenly came to a halt. 
She'd eventually conclude that her husband was dead after receiving word that he and a party of travelers were attacked and killed by hostile Native Americans. A very real threat in Montana in those days. We'll talk a little bit more about his wife Mary later on in this episode, but Charles Bowles wasn't dead. He had, however, begun a new life. He moved to San Francisco and started going by the name Charles E. Bolton. And as far as I can tell, his life between Montana and 1871, all the way up to his time in California in 1875, is a mystery. What we do know is that Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Charles Bolton, soon to be known as Black Bart, was on a mountain pass called Funk Hill, not far from Copperopolis, California, on the 26th of July, 1875. We know this because that's when and where he robbed a Wells Fargo strongbox of $348. He stopped the stage armed with a double-barreled shotgun and a Henry rifle slung over his back. He wore a long duster and a flour sack over his head with holes cut out for the eyes. During this first robbery, he politely asked the stage driver to toss down the strongbox, also known as an express box, security box, or sometimes even a treasure box. It's basically where Wells Fargo kept their payrolls and other really high-value items. Bowles then looked over his shoulder and called out, If you dare shoot, give him a solid volley, boys. The stage driver glanced past Charlie only to find what appeared to be six rifle barrels poking out of the brush, aimed straight at him. So it's no surprise that he wasted no time in tossing the strongbox to the ground. When a startled female passenger tossed her purse to Charlie, he picked it up, gave the lady a bow, and handed her purse back, saying, Madam, I do not wish your money. In that respect, I honor only the good office of Wells Fargo. As Charles waved that first stage onward, he began working at the strongbox with a hatchet. And then another stage approached, which Bowles stuck up as well. I mean, why waste the opportunity, right? Unfortunately, the second stage did not have a strongbox, so Charlie just let him pass. Little ways down the trail, both stages met up, and the drivers, along with some male passengers, decided to walk back down the road and see if they could find the dastardly thief. What they found was that the half a dozen guns leveled at them from behind boulders were just cleverly disguised sticks that made it appear as if an entire gang had their guns at the ready. Black Bart was nowhere to be found, and a legend was born. He would have been in his late 40s at this time, not usually the age when criminals begin their careers. He was described as being about 5 foot 8 inches tall, with gray hair, a mustache, and piercing blue eyes. When he wasn't busy robbing Wells Fargo, Black Bart, a.k.a. Charles Bolton, could be found walking the streets of San Francisco in fancy clothes, sporting diamond jewelry as he lived the high life, staying in the most luxurious hotels and eating at the finest dining establishments. If you'd have seen him, you'd have thought he was just some refined older gentleman, as opposed to a notorious shotgun-wielding bandit. All total, Black Bart is believed to have robbed Wells Fargo stagecoaches a total of 28 times between 1875 and 1883, taking them for $18,000, half a million in today's money, always in the most polite way imaginable. When he asked you to throw down the strong box, he always added a please to it. He was so polite to the passengers, especially the female passengers, that he became known as the gentleman robber. Hell, he refused to take money from them even when they offered it, like that lady I previously mentioned who tossed her purse to Bart. Another lady, during an 1878 robbery, started to get out of the stage and give up her valuables, but Bart stopped her short, saying, No, lady, don't get out. I never bother the passengers. Keep calm, and I'll be through here in a minute and on my way. And that's exactly what he did, leaving with $50 worth of Wells Fargo gold and a silver watch. I'm not going to go over every robbery that Black Bart committed, but I'll just take a sampling from one year, just to give you a little taste. In the year of 1881, he robbed five stagecoaches, one on August 31st in Siskiyou County, where he took the box and the mill. Two stages in one day on October 11th in Shasta County. One of these was a nighttime robbery, and in both of them, he was able to get away with the security boxes. Another stage in Yuba County on December 15th. Again, he took the Wells Fargo box along with the mail. And yet another on December 27th in Nevada County, California, where, you guessed it, he took the strong box and the mail. 
And this is just for the year 1881. Between that first robbery in 1875 and that last robbery of 1880, he was responsible for 14 additional holdups. After 1881, all the way leading up to November of 1883, he'd take down eight more. By the way, he wasn't completely reckless with his ill-gotten gain. Charlie started investing in small businesses there in San Francisco, and these investments did start bringing in a modest income. But he either could not or would not stop stealing. It was either the thrill of it or because he was so used to living that lavish lifestyle that he wasn't content on just the modest income that his investments were bringing in. You know, a modest income means living quietly and enjoying date nights at the Olive Garden. But if you want to dine at fancy French restaurants where they serve water and champagne glasses, you might have to rob a motherfucker every now and then. So Black Bart kept on robbing. Speaking of Black Bart, why did he call himself that? Believe it or not, it has nothing to do with a more urban hip-hop version of Bart Simpson. Nor did he name himself after Black Bart the swashbuckling pirate. Nope. His inspiration came from a story that first appeared in a San Francisco newspaper called The Case of Summerfield. I have not read it, nor do I plan to, but if you're of the curious bent, you can find it for free at gutenberg.org. And I will leave a link for you in this episode's description. The story features a villain that goes by the name Black Bart, who robs a Wells Fargo Express, and is described as an unruly and wild villain who dresses in all black and has wild black hair and a black beard and clear blue eyes. The real Black Bart, our Black Bart, didn't have a beard or black hair, but he did have those piercing blue eyes. And that's all that could be seen from underneath those flower sacks he used for masks. I started off this podcast by reciting a poem that Black Bart left behind after one of his robberies. And I think this is one of the more interesting things about the man. You know, it's not every day you encounter a poetry-loving, hardened criminal. But Bart did not leave a poem every time he committed a crime. Matter of fact, there were only three known occasions where he did this. The first was after his fourth robbery in Sonoma County. The poem that he left there is the one I recited at the beginning of the podcast. The one that goes, I've labored long and hard for bread, for honor and for riches, but all my corn's too long you've tread, you find here at Sons of Bitches. The second poem that Bart left was after his very next robbery in Butte County, California, which read, Here I lay me down to sleep, to wait the coming morrow, perhaps success, perhaps defeat, and everlasting sorrow. Yet come what will, I'll try it once. My conditions can't be worse. But if there's money in that box, tis money in my purse. Not gonna lie, I'm not a big fan of poetry, but his stuff ain't that bad. It rhymes and it's kind of funny, shows he's got a good sense of humor, and it's not full of pretentious words that I don't understand. So, way to go, Black Bart. The third and final poem was left three months later in October of 1878 when he took down a stage in Mendocino County. Warning, this one is a bit more explicit than the previous two. Black Bart may have been polite, but he was a criminal. And this was the Wild West, so don't blame me, I'm just reporting the facts. Okay, the third poem reads as follows. I don't want to spit, I want to gulp. I want to gag, I want to choke. I want you to touch that little dangly thing that swings in the back of my throat. Now from the top and make it drop, that's some wet-ass pussy. Get a bucket and a mop for this wet-ass pussy. I'm talking wop, 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 that's some wet-ass pussy. Macaroni in a pot, that's some wet-ass pussy. All three poems were signed Black Bart, the Poet Bandit. The word poet being spelled with the letter P, the letter O, and the number 8. So, po eight. So yeah, Black Bart was a creative sort of guy. And yes, the last poem I recited was not Black Bart. Just joking about that. That was actually Cardi B and Megan the Stallion from their new hit, Wet Ass Pussy. If you're not familiar with the song, just ask your granddaughter about it. Most of the time when Black Bart told a stage driver to throw down the strong box, they obeyed. And if they said the coach wasn't carrying the strong box, he took the word for it. I guess the unwritten rule in those days was that if you lied and the bandit later found out that you did indeed have a strong box, 
He'd kill you the next time he met you on the trail. But not everyone was so inclined to be robbed. One notable incident involved a stage driver by the name of George W. Hackett. When Bart attempted to rob him in July of 1882, Hackett raised his rifle and let her rip on Black Bart, nearly killing the old bandit. The bullet actually grazed his head and left a scar that he carried for the rest of his life. Probably ruined a perfectly good pair of long johns as well. And although he didn't get the strong box that day, he was lucky enough to be able to escape with his life and without getting caught by the law. He escaped on foot, by the way, as he always did. I forgot to mention that Black Bart did not ride horses. He was actually scared of them. I'm not making that up. This didn't slow the man down, though. He was able to quickly travel long distances just on foot, allowing him to make a clean escape time and time again. But nobody's luck lasts forever. Bart's ran out in November of 1883. I say luck, but I'm not really sure Lady Luck had anything to do with it. I think he just got sloppy. A stage driver known as Mac McConnell was hauling $4,200 worth of gold he just picked up from a mine, as well as a Wells Fargo strongbox containing $600 worth of gold. And perhaps because of the value of the cargo, or perhaps because they were tired of Black Bart and other bandits taking their stuff, this particular strongbox was bolted to the floor of the coach. Mac McConnell's companion for the trip was 19-year-old Jimmy Rolleri who brought along his trusty 44 caliber Henry rifle. A rifle I'd really like to own, by the way. Found one on the Henry Repeating Arms website, the Henry Big Boy, chambered in 44 Magnum, with the octagon barrel and brass receiver. All for just $972. So, if you're wondering what to get me for Christmas, I'm just saying. By the way, Jimmy was not riding shotgun. He brought the rifle because he had venison on the mine. Mac had told Jimmy how many deer he'd been seeing on this route, and Jimmy decided to tag along hoping to make some meat, maybe fry up some backstrap. This incident took place on Funk Hill, the same place where Black Bart committed his first robbery that we know of back in 1875, eight years prior. I actually looked up Funk Hill on Google Maps. It's about 130 miles east of San Francisco and just northwest of Yosemite National Park. Funk Hill is right next to the New Maloney's Lake, a man-made lake created long after Black Bart was gone. And New Maloney's Lake is home to, get ready for this, the Glory Hole Recreation Area. I shit you not. Look it up on a map, you don't believe me. Literally less than a mile away from Funk Hill, as the crow flies, is the Glory Hole Recreation Area. I uh, looked it up and yeah, looks like it's just a waterfront park with campgrounds, trails, a visitor center, an amphitheater, as well as access to fishing and boating. I thought about calling the Glory Hole Recreation Area and recording them for this podcast. Maybe ask about the amenities, you know. Is the Glory Hole clean? How discreet would you say that the Glory Hole is? But I decided not to. I'm sure the fine people that work at the Glory Hole Recreation Area don't need to hear my dumbass snickering over the phone making childish jokes. And frankly, I'm way too mature to do such a thing. It's undignified. So all of you listening to this, please, whatever you do, do not prank call the Glory Hole Recreation Area at 6503 Glory Hole Road, Angels Camp, California, and then email me about it. I'm telling you right now, do not do it. I wonder if there's a road sign for Glory Hole Road. If there is, I'm guessing they have one hell of a hard time keeping teenagers from stealing it. Anyway, so yeah, Black Bart and Funk Hill. About halfway up the hill, Jimmy hopped off the stage with his rifle and started hunting, planning to meet Mac further on down the trail. As Mac continued alone, sure enough, Black Bart stepped out from behind a boulder, brandishing that shotgun and wearing his trademark flower sack mask. Now keep in mind, Bart had been watching for a minute, and he did see Jimmy get out of the stage. This made him nervous. And not that anybody asked me, but as far as I'm concerned, he should have aborted the operation right then and there. Surely he must have wondered why an armed man just embarked the coach and was headed into the tree line just before arriving at the ambush site. That would have made me way too paranoid to continue. 
and don't call me Shirley. But he did continue. Everybody gets cocky, I guess, and eventually we all slip up. Bart stepped behind the boulder, like I said, shotgun in hand, and asked where the man went that jumped off the coach. McConnell said the kid was looking for stray cattle, which I guess satisfied Bart's curiosity. He then told McConnell to toss down the strong box, which McConnell couldn't do because the damn thing was bolted down. After a little bit of a back and forth, Bart had McConnell get down off the coach, put a rock underneath one of the wheels so it wouldn't lurch backwards downhill, and unhitch the horses. And I say a back and forth because McConnell actually argued with Black Bart. When Bart told him to get down and unhitch the horses, McConnell said that the wagon would roll downhill if he did that. So Bart told him to place a rock behind one of the wheels. And McConnell actually said, and I quote, Why don't you do it? Gotta imagine at this point Black Bart wasn't being such a gentleman bandit. The clock was ticking, somewhere out there was a guy with a rifle, and now this asshole's arguing with him. In my mind at least, Black Bart would be starting to get real short with this man. But you know, still somehow managing to be polite. Would you kindly get down off the wagon, sir, and put a gosh dang rock behind the blasted wheel and unhitch that team of horses like I told you to, you hard-headed, argumentative son of a bitch? Please. After McConnell finally did what he was told and led the horses on down the trail, he began to hear Bart attacking the strong box with a hatchet, and then he caught sight of Jimmy, still hunting. McConnell waved him over, explained what had happened, and borrowed Jimmy's rifle, thinking maybe he could kill or capture the bandit as he was busy trying to get at all that ill-gotten loot. The two men carefully crept up to where Black Bart was, saw that he had just gotten the strong box open, and then he spotted him. More importantly, he spotted that rifle and hopped down off the stage to make his getaway. Remember, Black Bart weren't no killer, and he wasn't going to engage in a gunfight with two honest men. Just a random thought. I wonder if that shotgun was even loaded. He clearly used it just as a prop. You know, I never read about him using it even just to shoot off a warning shot. Which, you know, if I was Black Bart, I feel like I would have done in this situation. If he was unwilling to kill... He could have at least loaded that bad boy up with some rat shot and peppered the two men just to scare him away. Instead, they began peppering him with deadly rounds from that 44. McConnell fired twice and missed twice, but an impatient Jimmy told him to give his rifle back, insisting that he was a better shot. Turns out he was. He squeezed off a round just as Black Bart was entering into a thicket. The pair saw the outlaw stumble, but he didn't fall. He continued to flee, out of sight. Jimmy had hit his mark, but it wasn't a kill shot. McConnell and Jimmy quickly made their way down to the scene of the crime and found Mel from the stage scattered all over the place. Mel now stained with Bart's blood. They then hitched the horses back up, loaded up all the tools that Bart left behind, and rushed into town to report the news. A posse was formed led by Wells Fargo agent W.H. Case and headed out to the scene of the crime. By the way, young Jimmy Rosselli was a member of this posse as well. This kid was 19 and probably having the most exciting time of his life. After all, he had just shot the notorious Black Bart. Guarantee you that he did not have to buy his own drinks for quite a while after this. The posse searched the area of the robbery and found a leather valise, a little traveling bag containing a case for a pair of field glasses, a belt, a razor, three soiled linen shirt cuffs, two paper sacks containing crackers and sugars, got to keep those glucose levels up when you're out waiting for a stage to rob, two empty flower sacks, and a knotted up old handkerchief containing a handful of buckshot. Unfortunately for Bart, these special agents for Wells Fargo weren't just some country bumpkin sheriff's deputies. As they scoured the evidence, they noticed something on the handkerchief. There on one of the corners was a laundry mark. In the meantime, Bart was still making his getaway. That bullet that Jimmy fired struck him in the hand. Not a life-threatening wound, but it couldn't have felt too good. It had taken Bart nearly half an hour to finally break open that Wells Fargo strongbox. And by the time Jimmy and McConnell showed up and decided to go all John Wayne on his ass, he was exhausted. And remember, Bart didn't like horses, so he was on foot, carrying a 20-pound sack of Wells Fargo gold and bleeding like a stuck pig. So he wasn't exactly traveling as fast as he usually did. He eventually stopped long enough to stash the gold amalgam in a rotten log while he pocketed the coins and wrapped up his hand with another handkerchief. 
I wasn't sure what gold amalgam is, so I looked it up. Turns out there's something called gold flower. Really, really, really tiny microscopic specks of gold dust, basically. But gold is gold, right? You just got to figure out how to collect it. That's where mercury comes in. Miners back in the day in California would add mercury to their placer mines. And from what I can understand, just to the couple of minutes I dedicated to trying to understand it, the mercury would collect the fine gold dust and form into a sort of a dull gray solid mass that you could later render down into gold. The word amalgam literally means a mixture or a blend. So gold amalgam, if I'm understanding this correctly, was a mixture of gold and mercury, I think. It's an ingenious method for getting every last bit of gold dust, but horrible for the environment. There's still areas of California that have problems to this day due to the use of mercury for mining from the Black Bart era. Anyway, Bart stashed the amalgam, buried the shotgun, getting rid of evidence, okay, and then he dished everything he didn't absolutely need, except the coins, of course. He finally arrived in Sacramento on Tuesday, November 4th, 1883, three days after the robbery and after having traveled nearly 100 miles on foot through rough terrain. Bart swung by the barber shop and got a much-needed haircut and shave, got measured for a brand new suit and bought a train ticket to Reno, Nevada, where he'd lay low for a few days. He also mailed off a couple of letters, one to his landlady in San Francisco asking her to hold his room for him, and another to his laundry man, a guy by the name of Thomas Ware, to hold his laundry for him. Told him both he'd be back in a few days. He left Reno, headed back to Sacramento to get his new suit, and then back home to San Fran. But he didn't immediately return to his room. Just to be on the safe side, he stayed at a lodging house that first night until he could make sure everything was on the up and up. Once he ascertained that it was, you know, made sure the coast was clear, he went back to living that high life that he was accustomed to, assuming that he had gotten by, barely, with yet another crime. But Wells Fargo never forgets. The main detective charged with hunting down the notorious Black Bart was named James B. Hume. He got his start as a peace officer way back in 1860 in El Dorado County and was elected city marshal of Placerville, California, four years later. He returned to El Dorado where he was elected sheriff and finally, in 1871, at the age of 43, Hume was hired by Wells Fargo as a detective. Black Bart was very aware of Hume. He knew the man was hunting him and he enjoyed taunting the lawman. Oftentimes, during the course of a holdup, he told the driver to please give his regards to Detective Hume. When Hume inspected the belongings that Bart left behind on that last botched holdup, namely the handkerchief, he turned it over to his bloodhound, another detective named Harry Morse. Now, Morse was no greenhorn either. He made his bones breaking up gangs of banditos in Central and Southern California in the 1860s and 70s. More than one outlaw fell under his guns. And it was he who was now charged with scouring San Francisco laundries in search of the one that left the mark FX07 on the handkerchief. In 1883, there were 91 laundries in San Francisco. So, Morse started visiting them, one by one, until finally, after about a week, he hit pay dirt. A laundry owner recognized the mark and sent Morse to a tobacco shop on Post Street, ran by Thomas Ware, who I mentioned a minute ago. Evidently, tobacco shops back in those days kind of served almost as a mini Walmart, one-stop shop. You know, you could pick up various groceries, including tobacco, and even get your laundry done. The tobacco store slash laundry owner immediately recognized the handkerchief and said it belonged to his friend, a Mr. C. E. Bolton, a mining man, and that he'd be back in the morning to pick up his clothes. Detective Morse also found out Bart's address. He was staying at the Webb House on 2nd Street, room 40. They put a lookout at that location, but it turned out to be unnecessary. Bart would come to him. When Morse returned to the tobacco shop to talk to Ware again, much to the detective's surprise, Mr. C.E. Bolton came walking in early, dressed to the nines. Fancy derby hat, large diamond pinky ring, heavy gold watch and chain, carrying a little cane and sporting an imperial beard. The imperial is where you have a handlebar mustache and uh, what's it called? Uh, a soul patch. You know, that facial landing strip, as I like to call it. 
Think like a Van Dyke goatee, but only the mustache is curling up into a handlebar. Kind of cool, I think. You can see Buffalo Bill wearing one of these in some of his pictures. Anyway, Black Bart comes sashaying in, mustache on point, and gets introduced to the detective who pretends to be named Hamilton. He asks Bart if he's in the mining business, to which Bart confirms that yes, he is. Morse then says that he has a matter of importance relating to some mining issues that he'd like to consult Bart on, and if he could spare a few minutes. Black Bart, always the gentleman, politely said that he certainly could spare a few, and Morse led Mr. Bart down the street, right up to and inside the Wells Fargo and Company office. But Bart, still playing it cool, seems completely undisturbed to be entering into the belly of the beast. Either that or he was casing the joint, maybe thinking about how fun it'd be to burgle the damn headquarters of his most hated nemesis. Once inside, Morse introduced Black Bart to Detective Hume, the same detective that he'd been taunting during his robberies. And Hume starts turning up the heat, asking Bart, who, remember, is going by his alias as a respected well-to-do mining engineer, about his business. Where are your mines located? What are their names? What's the name of just one of your mines? That kind of stuff. Then, of course, Bart couldn't answer because he didn't have any mines. Then Hume zeroes in on that injured hand, the one that got hit by the bullet. What happened to your hand, Mr. Bolton? Bart says that he accidentally struck it while getting off a train car. This went on and on for over three hours. He either couldn't answer any of the questions or he refused to. And I'm wondering at this point if Detective Hume had any actual legal authority to detain or question Bart. He worked for Wells Fargo, not the police. But I'm thinking things worked a little bit differently in the 1800s. No Miranda rights were read, that's for damn sure. Eventually, Hume calls in the law, the real law, and they, along with Bolton, a.k.a. Bart, go to Bart's room at the Webb house. In the room, they find a suit matching the description of the suit worn by the stage robber on Funk Hill. In that suit's pocket, they find a handkerchief bearing the same laundry mark, FX07, found on the one left at the scene of the crime, along with a whole lot of other clothes bearing that mark. Now, I googled laundry mark 1880s just to get an idea of what this meant. Looks like they literally marked in ink on your clothing to organize and keep track of what belonged to who at the laundry uh, place. Not sure if they called them laundry mats back in those days. Anyway, they'd put the mark somewhere where it wasn't too visible, maybe like on the inside of a collar or a cuff or something like that. Bart's defense was that he's not the only damn one who uses that laundry service. Besides, maybe somebody stole the handkerchief, or maybe he left it somewhere and somebody picked it up. And that person is who you're looking for, not me. Why, do you take me for a stage robber? He actually asked the detectives, saying that he'd never harmed anybody in his life and that this is the first time his character had ever been called into question. Speaking of character, they also found a Bible in the room. An inscription on the inside of it read, This precious Bible is presented to Charles E. Bowles, 1st Sergeant, Company B, 116th Illinois Volunteer Infantry, by his wife as a New Year's gift. God gives us hearts to believe. Decatur, Illinois, 1865. It was signed by Mary Bowles. Poor Mary Bowles. Once loved her husband so much that she gifted him a precious Bible even wrote a nice little message on the inside, only to have him abandon her and the kids without so much as a word. I wonder if Bart ever thought about how she and the kids were doing when he was out buying all that jewelry and fancy clothing. Anyways, they took Bowles to Stockton, California and tossed him in jail, where even as evidence continued to mount, he kept up a calm facade. even seemed amused at the large crowd that gathered outside of the jail. They brought in Mac McConnell, that stage driver that argued with Bart about placing the rock behind the stage wheel, and upon hearing Bowles speak and recognizing the voice, confirmed that he was the man who robbed the stage. And of course, there was more questioning. It took a while, but Bart began to crack. He finally asked Detective Moore something along the lines of, Hey, look, I 100% did not rob any stagecoaches. 
But let's say I hypothetically did, which I didn't. What would it benefit me from saying that I did? Morris explained that if someone admitted their guilt, the judge might take that into consideration during sentencing. Whereas if the accused fought it and were to be found guilty, the judge would likely throw the book at him. Bart then asked, well, suppose the man that committed these robberies were to confess. Could he not get clear altogether? And Morris, to his credit, gave it to Bowles straight. He said no. The man who pleads guilty must still pay and do some time in prison. Upon hearing this, Bart stood up, beads of sweat now forming on his forehead. He looked at Morris and said, quote, I want you to understand that I'm not going to San Quentin. I'll die first. San Quentin, of course, being California's oldest prison. And where both Johnny Cash and B.B. King performed and recorded live albums. Matter of fact, a young inmate who, despite his mama trying, was a resident at San Quentin during one of Johnny Cash's performances there. This branded man was inspired by Johnny to clean up his act and start making music himself. That prisoner's name was Merle Haggard. At least that's the way I heard it. Sorry, I've been listening a lot to the Way I Heard It podcast and decided to try to channel my inner Mike Rowe for some reason. Back to Black Bart. After more questioning and more Black Bart asking about the benefits of a confession, he finally gave in. He'd take his chances and place his fate at the mercy of the court system. Let's go after it, Bart said. Half an hour later, he, along with a couple of detectives, were headed back to Funk Hill to retrieve the hidden gold. Shortly thereafter, on November 16, 1883, Charles Bowles, a.k.a. Charles E. Bolton, alias Black Bart, stood before Judge P.H. Keene and pled guilty to a single charge of having robbed that last stage on November 3rd. The following day, he waived his rights to trial by jury and was sentenced to six years at San Quentin, a sentence he began serving just four days later as prisoner number 11046. By the way, he never admitted to being Black Bart, nor did he admit to being Charles Bowles. He still maintained that his real name was Charles Bolton. However, once in prison, he began writing his estranged wife, Mary. There's no doubt in anyone's mind that he was Charles Bowles. Some speculate that he just continued to go by the name Bolton as to not embarrass or draw attention to his family. Official San Quentin paperwork describes Bart as having a small mole on his left cheekbone, a scar on the right side of his forehead, you know, that one he got from that stage driver, a scar on the inside of his left wrist, a tattoo on his right upper arm, gunshot wound scars in his right abdomen, high cheekbones, heavy eyebrows, a large head, long hairy forearms, a tuft of hair on his chest, and a broad nose. I get having to keep accurate records and the importance of being able to positively identify one of your inmates, but still, what a crappy job that must have been to just sit there and examine naked prisoners and describe their bodies in such minute detail. During Bart's stint in prison, he worked as a clerk in the prison hospital where he did such a good job at filling prescriptions that he gained the respect of the hospital doctors. Even said he might take a job working in a drugstore after his release. And although he officially received no visitors during his time at San Quentin, rumors circulated about wealthy men that were visiting him, men who may have been instrumental in securing his early release. And he was released early on January 21st, 1888, after serving four years and two months. He was 59 years old. As soon as Bart stepped outside the prison, he was met by the press, who bombarded him with questions. He continued to insist that his name was Charles Bolton and said that although he was older and feeling his age, that he was still in good health, other than being a little hard of hearing and needing to wear glasses to read. He also added that he was through with crime. When asked if he planned on writing more poetry, he jokingly replied, Didn't you hear me say I'm done with crime? Bart headed back to San Francisco and took up residence at the Nevada House at 132 6th Street. That address still exists. I looked it up and it's now home to the Frina Bakery and Cafe, a family-operated kosher bakery where you can get sweet, savory breads and pastries offered in bright quarters. I wonder if they know the history of their building. 
If, of course, it's still the same building that stood there 132 years ago. Probably isn't, but it's fun to think about. Earlier, I said that Wells Fargo never forgets. And despite Black Bart serving his time, you know, paying his dues and all, they still remembered and began shadowing the old outlaw, keeping tabs on him. Something that he didn't appreciate too much. He actually wrote his wife about it, saying, quote, I've made no effort to avoid them, but when I do, Mr. Detective will find his hands full to keep track of me. Not that I care for anything, only the contemptible annoyance of his constant presence. And I know, too, that if they can, they'll put a job on me if I remain among them. They think that I, having served a term, it'll be easy to fasten a second job on me. But I don't propose to allow them to succeed in anything they could consort against me. I'm entirely demoralized. Feel like getting entirely out of reach of everybody for a few months. End quote. By the way, he never did see his wife again. Something mysterious happened just two days after his release from prison. Someone put a personal ad in a newspaper that read, Black Bart will hear something to his advantage by sending his address to MR Box 29, this office. Some speculate that this could have been someone trying to offer him a job, some sort of book deal, or that it could have been his suspected mistress, a Miss Mary Vollmer, trying to contact him. But it's all speculation. The ad was only printed once, and there's no word if Bart even ever actually saw it. Now, I just mentioned Mary Vollmer as a possible mistress. I tried looking into her, but I couldn't find any more info. There's no evidence that Charles ever had any relationships with women after he left his wife. You know, no proof of a second family or mistresses or anything like that. Considering he abandoned his wife and was living that high life in California, I'm sure he probably had women on the side, no doubt. It's just that I couldn't find any proof of such. In February of 1888, just a month after his release from prison, Black Bart checked himself into the Palace Hotel in Visalia, California. And then he disappeared, leaving his valise in the room. A valise much like the one he left behind at the scene of his last robbery up there on Funk Hill. It contained a can of corned beef, a can of tongue, a pound of coffee, packages of crackers and sugar, a jar of jelly, two neckties, and two pair of cuffs bearing the laundry mark FX07. That same laundry mark found by the Wells Fargo detectives five years before. And no one ever saw Charles Bowles, Black Bart, ever again. Theories abound as to what may have become of him, however. But I didn't find them very interesting, so I decided not to include them in this episode. All right, and I think that about wraps it up for Black Bart. Thank you as always for listening. No, of course I'm going to talk about the theories. Okay, check it out. Just four years after Bart's disappearance, his wife Mary Bowles is listed in an 1892 city directory as a widow, indicating that by 1892, Bart was dead. So did he die and we just don't know when, where, and how? Or did she finally just give up on him ever coming back home and decide to move on with her life? In the book Black Bart, The Search is Over, written by Robert Jernigan and Wiley Joyner, they claim Bart moved to Marysville, California and changed his name to Charles Wells, where he worked in a pharmacy until his death in 1914. Full disclosure, I have not read the book yet, so I can't comment on how well-researched or anything it may be. No idea if there's any sand to their claims or not. I did look into Charles Wells, and right off the bat, I mean, okay, his last name is Wells. Get it? Wells Fargo? Was this Black Bart's way of getting one last dig in at Wells Fargo? And Charles Wells supposedly worked in a pharmacy, the same job that Bart did in prison that he expressed an interest in pursuing once he became a free man. I was able to find an article about Charles Wells written shortly after his death. Basically, there was some controversy at the time as to whether or not this old man, who evidently had no family, had $24,000 squirreled away. There's no mention in the article of him being Black Bart, but there's a whole lot of speculation about a large sum of money that he may have hidden. I'll get back to Wells in a minute. Another theory is that Bart moved to Texas. There's a family in Texas that claimed to have a great-great-whatever 
who moved there from California to escape his past as Black Bart. In Texas, the 60-year-old ex-con married a very young 18, 19-year-old girl, and they had a passel of kids. In both of these cases, by the way, there's no documented evidence. It's all just hearsay and circumstantial stuff. Yet another theory. In the summer of 1888, months after Bart was last seen in Visalia, there was an attempted robbery of a Wells Fargo stagecoach on the Geiger grade between Virginia City, Nevada, and Reno. The would-be robber wore a mask and carried a shotgun, just like Black Bart. The stage driver refused to toss down the strong box and instead opened up on the thief with his own shotgun, a 10-gauge. And trust me on this, you do not want to be shot with a 10-gauge. The bandit was probably dead before he even hit the ground. The driver of the stage paused just long enough to drag the dead man off the trail before he carried on, but he did report the incident to authorities once he arrived in Reno. Wells Fargo contacted the Story County Sheriff, and he, along with a coroner and several other men, rode out to investigate. They found the body, but were unable to find anything on him that identified the dead man. The shooting was declared legally justified, and the unknown bandit was buried right there on the spot. To this day, nobody knows the identity of this man who was killed. Some of the people who inspected the body were later shown pictures of Black Bart, and they said that the body bore a possible resemblance. So was this Black Bart looking to take down one more Wells Fargo stage? Was it a copycat bandit? Or just some fool trying to make a quick buck? We'll probably never know. Could Black Bart have traveled back east and started a new life under his original name? It's always possible. There was an obituary printed in a New York newspaper in 1917 for a Civil War veteran named Charles E. Bowles. Allegedly, at least. I couldn't find a copy of said obituary. Then there's the Michler Hotel incident in Murphy's, California, that took place in either 1909 or 1910. A young waitress named Rose served an older customer dinner. The next day, the hotel's owner pulled her aside and told her that she had served Black Bart. Was he full of shit? Who knows? And the final theory that I was able to find, my favorite one, is what I call the Japan theory. John N. Thacker, a highly respected Wells Fargo detective, one of the men who helped apprehend Black Bart, was sent to investigate an outlaw in Kansas in the late 1890s who claimed to be our Black Bart. Upon investigation, it was determined that he wasn't. But what's interesting is what Thacker wrote to Detective Hume. Quote, as for the original Black Bart, he is out of the country. He served his time and it became my duty to look after him for a few weeks after he got out of San Quentin prison. He went to Utah and then up Montana and then to Haley, Idaho. I think he had some business to settle there. Anyhow, he was straight as a string. Finally, he made a beeline for Vancouver and boarded the steamer Empress of China for Japan. He is in that country now. End quote. This isn't hearsay from some family claiming that their great-grandpa was a famous outlaw or some author trying to sell a book. This is an actual respected investigator with a proven track record. The question is, where did he get this information? You know, was he still in contact with Bart when he made this claim, or did he hear about this from someone else? As far as Charles Wells go, the guy I mentioned that's buried in Marysville, California, his gravestone bears the name Black Bart. The full tombstone reads, Charles Wells, a.k.a. C.E. Bolton and Black Bart, born as Charles Earl Bowles, 1929-1914, Civil War veteran. But that wasn't his original grave marker. The original was just a small stone that said A-793. There's an article on a Sacramento News website from 2017 titled, Is Black Bart Buried in Historic Marysville Cemetery? The article quotes Marysville City Commissioner Victoria Tudor saying that she's seen enough proof and is confident that it's Black Bart's resting place. The only evidence stated in this article is the book that I mentioned, Black Bart, The Search is Over. Another person is quoted in the article, a Marysville City Councilman, Dale Whitmore, who says, quote, 
We believe he is Black Bart, but we have to get the evidence and get it out in public so everybody can look at it. Now, that's from 2017, just three years ago. I was curious about the new gravestone that bears the name Black Bart, so I called the cemetery. Couldn't really find out any info, but I was able to email the cemetery commissioner, Victoria Tudor. In the email, I asked how long that current gravestone had been up, if to her knowledge, Charles Wells ever confessed to being Black Bart, and what evidence there was that convinced her that he was Black Bart. She referred me to the book I keep bringing up, Black Bart, The Search is Over. Uh, Evidently, there's also a companion book available as well. And she told me that the current gravestone was placed there in April of 2017. She also said that she does not know if Wells ever confessed. I was able to find the obituary for Charles E. Wells, as well as a 1910 census that he's listed on. On the census, it says that he was born in Ireland and immigrated to the United States sometime in the 1850s. It lists his occupation as a farm laborer and says that he's 68 years old, which is way off for Black Bart. By 1910, Bart would have been already 80 years old. And Bart was born in England, not Ireland. Now, I know that census records are notoriously wrong on this sort of stuff. I've seen it myself on many records. But why list him as a farmer when he was supposed to be working at a pharmacy? Now, let's compare that to Charles Wells' obituary. The obit states that Wells was a longtime resident of Yuba County, where Marysville is located, and that at the time of his death, he was 84 years old, which does line up with Black Bart. The obit states that Wells was born in Ireland, which does not line up with Black Bart. And just like the census, it states that he was a farmer by occupation. The last two sentences of the obit read, quote, In former years, he was said to have been quite wealthy. So far, he leaves no relatives. Remember, there was dispute over a sum of $24,000 that Wells possibly had hidden away. If that money ever existed, nobody found it. And Wells was buried in the poor people's part of the cemetery. No family, just a tiny stone marker without even his name on it. And I'm just not seeing where the proof is that Wells was Black Bart. You know, just because somebody erects a tombstone, that doesn't make it a fact. But having a famous outlaw buried in your small town does bring in tourist money. I mean, just look at Heiko, Texas and the Billy the Kid Museum, whose entire existence is to promote a man who lied about being Billy the Kid. Not saying that's what the fine people of Marysville are doing, but I am skeptical. I'm just not seeing any real proof that Charles Wells was actually Black Bart. I did find a video on YouTube by History Hunters Jeff and Sarah called Is Black Bart's Grave in Marysville, California? I'll link to the video in the description. It's pretty cool. Definitely worth a look if you're interested. They travel to Marysville and actually speak with Victoria Tudor at the cemetery. And she answers a question that I was very curious about. Who placed the new headstone that reads Black Bart? It wasn't the city, as I had assumed, but a friend of the authors of the book Black Bart Searches Over. The city just allowed them to place the tombstone there. In the video, Jeff interviews one of the authors of the book, Wiley Joyner. Mr. Joyner's an older man, and it looks like a lot of the information centering around the idea of Black Bart living in Marysville comes from a former Yuba County Sheriff, Charles McCoy. McCoy's father, Hank, was also a Yuba County Sheriff back in Black Bart's heyday. Supposedly, Hank McCoy knew Black Bart. And one day in 1903, there in Marysville, Charles McCoy was approached by an old man who said he was Black Bart and expressed condolences at the passing of McCoy's father, Hank. McCoy later told people that Black Bart, a.k.a. Charles Bolton, was buried in Marysville. This led Joyner and his co-author to discover the gravesite of Charles Wells. During the interview, Joyner says, quote, If you want solid, positive proof, you're going to have to dig him up. You know, basically saying that they have to do a DNA test on the body and some of uh, Charles Bowles' descendants. He also said that when Black Bart was arrested, he told investigator Morse that he was born in Ireland. When we know, in fact, he was born in England. So, you know, if Wells was Black Bart, that might be why he was said to have been born in Ireland. He just kept uh, kept that lie up after all those years. 
Like I said, I haven't read the book yet, so there might be more information in there. I would like to read the book, though. My interest is picked. I'd also like to dig further and see if I can find Charles E. Wells on any other census records. You know, if we can find him on a census at the same time Black Bart was in prison or living in San Francisco, then that would prove that Wells was not the famous outlaw. As of right now, though, I have no idea what happened to Charles E. Bowles. I kind of hope the theory about him taking off to Japan is the truth, though. I'm not sure why, but I kind of like Black Bart. Kind of reminds me of Butch Cassidy. You know, neither men were violent, bloodthirsty killers. And the only damage that Black Bart ever did was to Wells Fargo's very deep pockets. But they're still around and doing just fine. Hell, I bank with them. I like that he was educated, polite, and seemingly harmless, considering the fact that he was hardened by war. And at one point in his life, he was idealistic, thinking maybe he could head west and find gold. Just like I think that maybe if I get enough people to listen to my stupid podcast, I can quit my job one of these days. Ha, JK, just kidding. I am not that delusional. Seriously, though, I know stealing is wrong. I know this. I'm not defending what he did. But this is just another one of those times where I kind of root for the underdog bad guy. Trust me, there's plenty of Old West lawmen who did far, far worse things than Mr. Black Bart. Yet they're considered heroes. And Bart's relegated to just some old man who got sent to prison. So whatever, man. I hope he did board that steamer to Japan. I hope he had some Wells Fargo gold cashed away from the old days and was able to dig it up and take it with him. Hope he enjoyed that last twilight of his life being bathed by geisha girls and sipping on sake. In researching this episode, I found a wealth of information on the website blackbart.com. If you want more details on Bart and the various people I've mentioned, give the site a visit and peruse its pages. I'll leave a link in the description. This episode's long enough, so I'll keep the ending short. I had the great pleasure of speaking with actor William Sanderson recently. You may know him from his role as E.B. Farnham on HBO's Deadwood. We spoke some on Deadwood here on this podcast. We also did an episode on the real story behind Lonesome Dove. Well, William Sanderson was in that as well. He played Lippy, the disgusting yet lovable piano player at the Dry Bean Saloon. If you're a little bit older than me, you may remember Sanderson as Larry, who had a brother Daryl and another brother Daryl from the Newhart Show. It was a great conversation, really enjoyed talking to the guy, and I'm working on editing the interview, and it will be released in a couple of days. Other than that, hope you're all doing well. Please email me at bloodybeaverpodcast at gmail.com with any topic suggestions, complaints, criticisms, recipes, humorous anecdotes, or whatever's on your mind. Do me a favor, if you're enjoying this podcast, tell somebody about it. You know that uncle of yours who's always watching old black and white westerns? Tell him about it. Share the podcast with your old history teacher. Tell your best friend's little sister. Yeah, you know the one. Share the podcast, damn it. And whatever you do, don't forget to keep it wop, wop, wop.